0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to episode 8 of our monthly Connecting with Classics series where I, Aaron, and my co-host Don Shanahan of Every Movie Has a Lesson have a conversation about a widely regarded great film from the past. For this month, we've chosen to close out the dog days of summer with a classic worthy of the sweltering heat that August is known for.
1: How very true, Aaron. Sprawling to soak up every grain of North African and Middle Eastern sand, few classic films scorch the silver screen history more than 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. True to our series goal, this is an AFI top 10 entry, which turns 56 years old this year. The longest days of summer brought out one of the longest films we'll watch for this podcast. If you have yet to watch this, put on your sunblock, grab a camel, pour yourself an umbrella drink, and time yourself for the inevitable bathroom break. If you have seen it and you are, and are listening to this show, you made it. You survived. Go to the bathroom quick because you might still need it. And again, as we like to say, spoiler warning, we are a podcast that is best listened to after you've seen the film. So turn us off now and come back later. Aaron, how did you survive with this? What other warnings do you have?
0: Well, I was curious. Do you remember, is this the oldest film we've covered? Or have we gone, I guess we've gone further back. I guess Bringing Back Baby would have been before this. Mm -hmm.
1: Vertigo of the 50s as well.
0: Vertigo was a little bit before this. Yeah, Um, But yeah, no, this is um, definitely the longest. I don't And you're going to mention some other long ones later on. I won't tease that, but Mm -hmm. I know we'll eventually cover some other lengthy films. It's kind of amazing how many there are compared to these days. So if you look at some of the classics from back in the day, you start to see this running time of two and a half hours plus. And this one, this one was a challenge. And there's a lot of people who have not seen this film because of its runtime. And I'm sure you and I will be sharing our history with it, uh, coming up here soon. So yeah, spoilers. We're going to talk all about it. So please, if you haven't seen it, go see it and then come or use that as a reason to, uh, use us as an excuse to go finally check this out.
1: So in terms of, um, historical background for the film and why this is a classic worth connecting with really like any big grand historical, historical epic of his day, the way Aaron was alluding to the fact that there was an era for this, um, where films left and right were, um, longer and a big deal and, and you were meant to stay at that theater all day it was your your entertainment experience to make a day to go to the movies um i feel like that was an era where there were less choices these are the kind of films that you think yeah you know these are the kind of films that would last in the box office for like nine months because there was four other things that came out not just four other things the next weekend you know and there
0: was one screen oh yeah in I most mean, this- cities if if they yeah. had a theater, so yeah, this was this was like what was going to be on your one screen to go see.
1: Oh, I know. And so, for, with that in mind, like today, we just go through this stuff and, and and absorb and digest content so much faster. And I don't know. Um, I'll talk about it in a little bit where I, I I long for. I would love to go back in time and experience these days. You know, like we're both very fond of the fact that this film has intermission and in music and all that. And we'll get to that in a second, but just um, inter- the other thing that kind of comes with these uh, big grand historical epics is the stuff we still get to go back for and laugh at, which is historical inaccuracies, broad uses of dramatic license and character representation issues, because the only people who were working back in the day were white Jews <laughs> and, and other people like that, where you just weren't going to have, you know, actors of color or actors of diversity getting to play diverse roles. You're going to dress up stars because stars sold.
0: So wait, Uh, you're telling me that Alec Guinness is not Arabian? Obi-Wan Kenobi is not actually an Arab?
1: I, you know, I I might have to check his birth certificate. We might have a president that can help us out with that. But um, as far (laughs) as I know, it's possible.
0: I caught that and I thought that was hilarious the first time I saw this. And I was like, wow, (laughs) Alec Guinness is playing Prince Faisal. Hmm, that doesn't really... But yet I, Omar and, Sharif is in this movie.
1: That, see, there, and I hate to call that tokenism. And I mean, he got his Oscar nomination for tokenism. And we've seen this over the course of Hollywood history where a grand performer of diversity gets a, a meaty, juicy, wonderful part to, you know, a, like a Yul Brenner, you know, who, who gets to come in and play something of some heft and, and represent – sometimes you know uh racially and culturally ambiguous figures or or play multiple uh look ben kingsley you know who's played every demographic possible Gandhi. so <laughs> oh i know so i mean i you can't call those things complete whitewashing when they get to dip their colors into many other places and things like kingsley does but but for alec guinness yeah because even though he puts that on this arabic accent you like wait a second, that is Alec Guinness. You know, it, it, it's, it is pretty plain to hear.
0: Here's the um, thing I have to say about that real quick form before we move forward, is I don't want to go into a lengthy conversation about it, but this is a good time to bring it up because wrong response in my opinion is to just dismiss these issues because of them occurring in the past. Even though now we know this is not a proper way to handle a film. If we saw these issues occurring today, we're more, tuned into them we are more understanding of the cultural climate and it would be a knock on a film would. while we can call them out and we can acknowledge it as part of what led to the correct way in casting and uh trying to make some changes in that department in the future we can't knock this film for being that way
1: and where I get to the place where I can't knock it is where I look past the race, the background, the diversity, and I go to the performance. Um, because acting is playing pretend; it always is. So, how well did these gentlemen or ladies do do with their part? Uh, how good is Alec Guinness as Prince Faisal? How good is any actor who's make putting themselves out for a challenge to do something? Are they Are they doing the role? The gender, the diversity, whatever trait you want to put, are they doing it good justice? Um, are they doing it right and properly? And if they are, I'm going to be okay with that because, like you said, the next thing that comes in is the era and just we can't, we can't revise all that. You, we can't have that revisionist history. We can, like you said, it's a touchstone to be reminded of it. It's a touchstone to understand the evolution that we've gotten better, but I, I can't go back and, and hate on these things. But when it comes to, you know, historical, historical epics, you know, the inaccuracies are a heavy thing. And if, and I'm not going to fill up this podcast with the Wikipedia page of every little historical inaccuracy of Lawrence Arabia because there's a ton, you know, T.E. Lawrence was this, T.E. Lawrence was that. Um, it's, I, I call it par for the course because you take a film like Braveheart, which has plenty of historical inaccuracies, but yet, what we're here for because this is drama and because this is fiction and because this is film, do we have an enriching and entertaining experience that what I like to think and what I hope for out of those kinds of films where the inaccuracies are there is, is it an inspiring enough experience to make you go home and learn the real thing? Do you go home and pick up an encyclopedia Do you go home and look up Wikipedia and want to learn more about what you just were entertained by? If a film can do that mission accomplished more because that's what documentaries are for for the rest so in terms of providing background where beyond the historical inaccuracies where the film kind of puts itself together, um, there's filmed across Morocco, Spain, and Jordan with the camel problems galore and a drunk old tool on occasion where again, there are ba- behind the scenes stories, which will come out in commentaries and in historical uh, pieces about this film that can kind of give you light on that. Again, I'm not going to fill the Wikipedia page with all that stuff, but um, the drunk tool story I got a kick out of, which I don't have context for.
0: Really? <laughs> well, there's some funny stuff in this, and that's because um, Ferrer, one of the actors, uh, is actually, he was playing the the Turkish Bey by, I don't know how you pronounce that exactly, but this is a, a, a Latin actor, Jose Ferrer, and he was known for being uh, a Broadway star at the time. And he was bigger than some of these other actors, and he actually demanded to play his part, which ended up only being like five minutes in the movie. Yet his $25,000 was more than Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif combined earned for this film. And he got that Mm -hmm. for playing five minutes. Mm -mm
1: -mm.
0: He was initially very unsatisfied and he was frustrated because he had such a small role, but ultimately he decided to throw himself into it. They added a Porsche onto his $25,000 and ultimately he said in an interview at the end of his career that if he was to be judged by any one film and one performance it was the five minutes in this movie so he got paid and it turned out to be some of his best work even though it was kind of a a lesser role for him
1: hey fake it till you make it earn it till you burn it you know (laughs) yeah um other than that um the, the fun part, because we're going to go back to length here a little bit. In its original cut, this was a 222-minute film uh, that equivalent that is the equivalent of about uh just short of 25,000 feet of 70 millimeter 70 millimeter film stock, and it is a one minute longer film than Gone with the Wind, making it the longest film to ever win the Best Picture Oscar. Uh, the most recent director's cut that most of us watched, and I'm pretty sure you watched that director's cut too, is a 227 minutes, which obviously puts it a little bit past that. Speaking of that, hopping over into awards, Lawrence of Arabia was nominated for 10 Oscars and won seven at the 35th Annual Academy Awards. It won for Best Picture and for Best Director for David Lean. The Best Original Score win for Maurice Jarre uh, would be his first of three wins in his career. All three of those wins he would have would come from David Lean Films, uh, following up Lawrence of Arabia with Dr. Shivago and A Passage to India.
0: Can I just say, I yeah. love the music. It was so memorable. And the overture, I like overtures in general. And this film really reminded me of that because when it starts, there's just something that pulls you in and it puts you in a mindset to watch a movie that you're not in any other time. When you're watching trailers in a theater leading Mm -hmm. up to a movie, you're seeing snippets of eight, nine, 10 other movies before the one you're going to watch. When Mm -hmm. you're at home, you're talking on the phone. You're texting. You may be texting leading right into the movie. You know, you're on Facebook. You're all these distractions. And what this overture does is it just reorients you and kind of puts you in the mind space to be ready to consume this story before you even see anything on the screen most of the time. And when they're done with such a great score, this one, Hateful Eight, has an overture that comes to mind, has a great uh, Morricone score to it. Um, on the on the show that I saw the 70 millimeter road show when that film came out, man, there's really nothing like it. The, the theater that does the 70 millimeter festival here in Seattle at at uh, Cinerama, one of our amazing theaters, they do these for pretty much everything they show. And when I went to the Blade Runner double feature, we had a created overture that they played for both of those films, and man, it just it just gets That's you right. Cool. It gets you right and gets you ready. And when you're, especially when you're going to watch something long like this, it's an Epic. It's nice to have that moment. And th- this music I, I think was definitely worthy of an award.
1: Absolutely. Um, I love the way you put that because uh, the word I use for it a lot of times is tone setter. Um, It just, like you said, it brings you in, it sets the tone. You start to hear those chords. You start to hear those motifs. You start to hear those cues and themes that are going to be called back and come in all the time. And it, it just, like you said, it, it forces you to funnel in and, and it preheats the oven. The, it's the, the water boiling before the pasta comes in. And like you said, you remove the other elements, you remove the other sensory distractions because you're into this music. That screen is dark and all you have is your oral, A-U-R-A-L, senses going with that. The same goes for cinematographer winner uh, Freddie Young, Frederick A. Young, Freddie Young. His first of three career trophies came from this film, and also um, the other three trophies came from more David Lane films. He also did Dr. Zhivago and then the Ireland set film Ryan's Daughter. So another great collaboration and early collaboration that bared fruit. The first for Best Art Direction, led by John Box, the first of his four career wins as he would go forward. Uh, the Best Film Editing was won by Anne V. Coates, who worked for six decades in the business until she was 90, as recently as editing Fifty Shades of Grey. So the lady who edited wow, Lawrence of Arabia edited just, Fifty Shades of Grey. Just wow. Uh, she just passed away last year at the age of 92. Uh, and also, finally, the seventh Oscar was for Best Sound. The three awards that it lost that year, were Best Actor, Lawrence O'Toole lost to, and it's hard to argue, lost to Gregory Peck for To Kill a a career-making performance for The, for the Gentleman. Uh, Best Supporting Actor, Omar Sharif, lost to Ed Begley. For Sweet Bird of Youth, a film I don't know. I know his son because we see him as a character actor in a zillion things. And it lost for best adapted screenplay again to, to kill Mockingbird. Um, O'Toole himself, after this first debut Academy Award nomination would go on to amass a total of eight nominations, never winning. That is an Oscar record for the number of nominations without a win.
0: Yeah. And that's insane. I mean, yeah, yeah. this, this performance alone, I, and I guess I get it because of Gregory Peck. It's a, it's a yeah. toss up. You can understand him losing in this year, even if he was very much worthy. But it's just staggering to me that he never was able to bring one home.
1: I know. You feel like, I think we see this a lot where you would figure him missing this would almost assure him, especially because of politics and et cetera, where they would make the, make it up for him. Yeah, he'd be winning something later where, okay, beginner's luck. First big debut performance after leaving Broadway, Lawrence and Arabia. Great epic, nice job, but hey, it's Gregory Peck. You know, the legend's going to beat the rookie. But you would think eight nominations later that one of those would have been, you know what? It's time we give Peter O'Toole a award. We owe him one. And it just never happened. He did get an honorary Oscar, you know, towards the end of his life. And he got it, I want to say in 2003, which ended up being before his final Oscar nomination before he passed in Venus. And, um, I remember the quotes from that year where Peter O'Toole didn't want it. He's like, I, I'm still working. I'm still earning. Uh, I can, I can win one of these outright without you handing me one for cuteness and for fun. And shows kind of the conviction of the man and the properness of the actor. And, and I commend him for it in a lot of ways. Um, back to our stuff where we do our connecting with classics. We plug ourselves into the American Film Institute and its top 100 uh, list of ranks and distinctions. And Lawrence of Arabia wraps you that. It was the number five all-time film on the initial first list, behind Gone with the Wind and ahead of Wizard of Oz. Um, it was number seven on its updated ten years list. It was bumped down. From the top five uh, by the invading Singing in the Rain and Raging Bull. Two films that I can see why I can leapfrog that spot. It still remains as the number one voted epic. It is the number three score of all time. It is the 10th greatest hero sandwiched between two Jimmy Stewart roles of all things. Where it is behind It's a Wonderful Life, but ahead of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It is number 23 on the thrills list. That's ahead of inspiring. Titanic and Star Wars, which...
0: That's a weird yeah, Like
1: Win your epic award... Yeah, like win your epic award, but then I see Titanic and I see Star Wars and I go, no, come on. Yeah, this is not in that category. No, And and the crazy thing about those sub lists where they started to break things into genres and emotions, if you want to call them that, those have not been updated since, you know, I want to say a decade and a half ago. So those are a little bit tricky. And the same thing with the number 30 on the cheers list, ahead of Glory and Casablanca, which, again, I think is crazy. Um not just for Glory, but for, you know, my number one of Casablanca, where I'm cheering in that movie more, I'm cheering in this one. So when did you first see this film, Aaron?
0: Well, exactly, almost exactly a year ago today. It was August 25th, 2017, and it was at that 70 millimeter film festival that I mentioned just a bit ago. I saw the restoration of this film, and when it popped up on the theater list for showings, I just knew this was the way I needed to see it for the first time. It couldn't imagine sitting down at home to watch it and boy am i glad um seeing it in our most incredible theater that was the way to fill in this blind spot for me because it was just mesmerizing it it blew me away completely and it totally lived up to the praise that i've heard it receive across the years
1: you use a certain term that starts with an m that you didn't read out loud go ahead and say it
0: oh did i write the word masterpiece in the notes you I did. did. Well, it is. but it is. I wasn't going to say it yet, but yes, it is.
1: Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. You'll hear me say it. It is. It, it, undoubtedly, it is. They. Um. This defines epic. Simple as that. Um. Many have tried. Few have conquered. Just it stands the test of time. Simple as that. What about you? Um. See, I was worse. This was a blind spot for me as well. Um. I didn't see it till last week uh colossal blind spot and one of the meaning to fix for a very long time i've owned the dvd for easily a decade never opened it uh it sat on the shelf going you know what i, I should watch that film i should own that film it was like a black friday deal some at some point where it was a great price i'm like i can i can get lawrence of arabia for seven bucks or something like that and i said um i gotta watch that sometime and it sat on the shelf kind of like ten commandments sits in the shelf i've seen ten commandments but no one picks it up and goes hey what do I gonna do with my free time? Let's watch Lawrence of Arabia. So it was treated pretty much like a collection item more than anything. Um, carving out the time to see what's the hardest part, and it um I'll likely lamented all podcasts in terms of just man, I, I waited too long to see this. Um, I, I definitely am jealous of you for seeing it on the big screen because I watched it on a projected screen, but on a on a classroom. DLP projector on a whiteboard uh, in a school classroom while I was setting up for my, my future first day of school, which was nice. It was big. I didn't watch it on my phone. I didn't watch it on a 40 inch little television. I watched it on 120 inches, but that's not 120 feet. Um, you were far, doing far, else. Great. Okay.
0: I, I couldn't. I, I, could, I know. I had, I had I stuff don't to do, man. Way, but man, it just hurt me. When, when I saw you say that, I was like, no. And that's that's the beauty of seeing this sucker in a theater for the first time. We, yeah. You can't be distracted especially something of this length because mm-hmm. whether you're into it or not no fault of the films our attention spans for only 4 hours like you're naturally it's going to wane some and it's yeah. hard. you're going to miss something and this film mm-hmm. is all about it's got so much detail so much amazing detail um not to be missed so I I hope you get a chance to see it in a theater like I did.
1: I will take the chance and put the money down to do it by far um completely I am jealous of the big screen experience that is possible from this film um like I said I watched it uh, projected in the classroom but it's not the same um we also here in Chicago have a 70 millimeter film festival run by the music box theater in town um, Lawrence of Ruby has been on that bill uh, several times in the past um I do need to treat myself and flatten my butt for four hours to because the uh, for those of you who are Chicagoans who listen to this, they have the worst seats in town. It's just an old rickety theater where you're going to fall through it before you're going to fall into it. And it's a mess. But in terms of watching and reactions that go with that, the scope still gets me uh, where there's enough elements here where I might not be able to because I'm working where I'm not super duper engaged in dialogue and story, but the aesthetic and artistic elements still really grab me excellently where yeah, the, from the overture and the intermission and the music, it, it is truly gorgeous and memorable work on the score end. Um, we said it before and I'll say it again. Scores can be such a tone and mood setter and still exist on their own as singular pieces of pure art where when, when it's isolated like that and you're not seeing that played against images on screen, it accentuates and, and increases that art form, which is the music that goes so much with movies that Like you said, Overtures are special and I wish more of them had it. And uh, um, yeah, I know why they don't do it. You know, you can't put a 200 minute film in the theater and turn it over four times and make money in a multiplex. So I get it, but I miss it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Up until this second viewing for me, I was pretty certain that The Bridge on the River Kwai was still my favorite David Lean film. And honestly, I guess that it might still be. I haven't seen it in forever, but I grew up with it. It is my
1: favorite David Lean as well.
0: Okay, good. Well, so I wouldn't be far off if it was. But the first time that I saw Lawrence of Arabia being that amazing theater experience, the feeling that I walked away with was I loved it because it was a classic. And I could sense the enormity of its weight and of its historical significance. And it was an incredibly well-made film that I kind of soaked in as a film buff sure. versus the way I kind of consume movies these days. And so this viewing was just as amazing, but it was very different because in my second viewing, I feel like I fell in love with this movie for its story and for the, the entirety of the film that it is, and not just for its specific elements that are memorable in film history. Um, I think, that, you know, even despite the three and a half hour runtime, I stay engaged the whole movie. I, I didn't waver at all. I wasn't ready for it to be over. I think that it's a treat every single scene. And it's become one of my favorite films of all time. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of fascinating to me because I would have told you that it was one of my favorite films of all time before this viewing. And it was in my top 100 but it was there for a totally different reason. Whereas now it's going to move much higher. And because I have an emotional connection, I feel like with it. Nice. Um, You know, there's so many iconic lines that come from this movie that I didn't know were from this movie until I watched it. And then similarly, the, the film or the, sorry, the uh, score that we talked about and the main theme, I had no idea that that was from Lawrence of Arabia, but I knew the music. The cinematography is incredible. Every shot, every single one is framed with this depth of beauty and attention to detail. And there's so many moments when I could see the effect that this had on future epics, even the Lord of the Rings trilogy, my favorite. Absolutely,
1: Yeah. I mean, come on on that walk-in. You know, absolutely. Like, how does Peter Jackson not get lift that from stuff like this? Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. Um, Drilling down to the the aesthetics and the production value, I'm with you. Every inch of that widescreen frame is impeccably filled with perfect art direction, production design, costume. Um, The use of extras is absolutely staggering. Sorry, Christopher Nolan Dunkirk. That's how you put a thousand men on the screen. Um, There are establishing and coverage shots in this film that I think are prettier than entire films where just just the way uh, Freddie Young's camera will just give you scope and depth from those mountains down into the valley where the camels are walking and all those different levels where because of the size and the depth, I don't think – and I know I watched it on a terrible classroom projector, and I, I think it would be, look even better on the big screen, of course. But I don't think I've ever seen a film this perfectly focused optically in my life because every shot is just precise. Every pixel, whoever restored this thing deserves every kudo in the whole wide world. And I know Spielberg and Scorsese were part of that team you know, for his 30th anniversary years ago, and um, the work they did was incomparable. It's, it's outstanding where, what, and I think you said it best, that first viewing, which is where I'm at, is, is all about the sweep, um, where the sweep and the scope is what grabs you f- for sure, because the production value is, is really just half of an epic sense of sweep and a compelling story is second. And this has a compelling story. I might not have been able to soak up and appreciate all of it to the level that you have. I don't have a super duper personal connection, but what I watched and what I saw is, is outstandingly composed. Um, I really enjoyed the, uh, kind of the citizen king fashion in which it started where, you know, you have this legend of a lead character being discussed after his passing and how T.E. Lawrence's accomplishments are, are completely worldly and impressive historical accuracies and all where this was that case where after I was done watching the movie, I went to Wikipedia and I wanted to know like, what was that man really like. But, um, but again, I, I, I screwed up. I, I used it as background filler. It, it needs a second viewing for me. It is a recognized five and a recognized masterpiece, but I I, I look forward to the chance to visit it again and I will wait with great patience to visit it again on the screen.
0: Good. I think that that will serve you well, 100%. No doubt about that. Um, I want to talk about first this match cut. Okay. As you are not familiar with Lawrence of Arabia and you have not looked up its history, you may not know what a match cut is, but I, well, I didn't. I'll just say that straight up. I didn't realize. I knew what the scene was, but I was not aware that this was a thing that had a title, etc. Yeah, so I, I
1: don't know this history either, so I'm, I'm indulgent in filling in with you here. This is great.
0: Okay, so what the match cut is, is it is a hard cut, and that means is that the image simply changes without a dissolve or a slow fade. A lot of times that's what we see in films. Even when you may not recognize it it's not super in your face The dissolve it's happening there and it goes between two scenes that are thematically linked but they're often set in different places and or different times um it was described by sean Finnessy, editor-in-chief of uh, the ringer and host of the big picture podcast he said when something happens with the forcefulness that a match cut has it tells us that this is an important moment and that's very very true and where it occurs in Lawrence of Arabia is very, very early in the film. Uh, Lawrence is hanging out <laughs> and just kind of wistfully wasting time in an officer's lounge or in an office space. And they're talking about sending him off. They're talking about the Arabs and the issues in, in Arabia and maybe someone needs to go. And Dryden says, Lawrence, only two kinds of creatures get fun in the desert. Bedouins and gods, and you're neither. Take it from me. For ordinary men, it's a burning, fiery furnace. Lawrence replies, no, Dryden, it's going to be fun. And Dryden says, it is recognized that you have a funny sense of fun. It's a fantastic exchange of dialogue. Um, Claude Rains, as Dryden, is wonderful. I love me some Claude Rains, as I know you do. Um, And this is such an important moment because we see Lawrence's kind of just I wrote down the words ballsy and brilliant. Okay. Because there are times in this movie where he makes the most amazing observations and then suggestions, but he also does things that are completely ridiculously insane and not well thought out. There's no logic to them. There's no safety aspect to them. And he just thought, well, ah, this would be fun to go out in the desert, you know? And like, no, no one else would think it would be fun, but Lawrence is a different creature. And peter Till pays him that way he plays him with a very interesting sense of mannerism um and the way the demeanor that he holds himself he's different and anyway we get back to this this line that dryden says he calls the desert a burning fiery firm, furnace and what happens here is dryden blows out a plume of smoke in a match a literal match cut that lawrence is holding The camera zooms in on Lawrence's face as he stares at the flame still burning on the tip of the match. Then we get silence for several seconds and it's only broken up by Lawrence's breath as he finishes blowing out that match. It's beautifully shot. Immediately, the scene changes to the burning orange sun rising over the endless desert, which is where the rest of our film is mostly going to unfold. So in all senses of the world, this is a literal match cut. I mean, the first... And the most important, it involves a match and it involves a fiery scenery change. Michael Jablo, who is the uh, head of editing uh, at the AFI Conservatory, actually, said it makes the jump from the small story of Lawrence, who is a small bureaucrat, to the mythic Lawrence of Arabia. He goes from that, again, kind of wacky, like sitting in an office with idealistic dreamer personality to riding on a camel stuck out in the middle of the sun with nothing around him at all but just distance and horizon he says it's not just that it's a good cut but that it was also brilliant storytelling and the scene's contrast is what makes the cut so impactful because it's this combination of extremes you get the close-up of the flame on the match moving to the sun that's coming over the horizon which reminds you of the close-up of the flame on the match and it's something that really had not been done in film up until this point. Also, I learned, and I think this is funny because you mentioned it, but this scene had its influence on Steven Spielberg directly. Spielberg said this transition blew him away, and he is credited as, quote, igniting his determination to make films. So not only did this film influence Steven Spielberg, but Lawrence of Arabia could directly be responsible for an inspirational piece that actually made Spielberg turn into a filmmaker in the first place. Just, just incredible. And and I have seen this before and never had context for it, but now that I understand it, both the history of it and the storytelling aspect of it, it's one of my favorite scenes in history, Don.
1: That's amazing. I, I knew none of that. Um, that's uh, I, now I'm, even more reason for me to go back and find another reason to watch it. And I love the way that you're talking about, the butterfly effect of that sort of where one begets the other one inspires another. And I know this is going to sound cheesy as the teacher, but like you think about some of the amazing film technique, filmmaking techniques that always come every year and how there's some kid somewhere and some YouTuber somewhere who's going to watch, you know, Damien Chazelle's camera movements in the dance scenes and the pool scenes of La La Land and go, I bet I can do that really cool on my phone. And then turn into something bigger someday where, yeah, the Spielberg lore of his origin is always is, is something known. Like you know, I'm film, filming on his eight millimeter in the backyard and all that. But the fact that that is ever ongoing—that we have this evolving art form, thanks to ingenuity, inspiring ingenuity—is utterly fascinating. I love that stuff. Great notes, man.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, the other big theme I wanted to talk about before we do our connecting points and our lessons, which kind of incorporate the biggest themes of this film. Is identity. It's one of my favorite topics in film. And I mean, if there's anything at the heart of Lawrence of Arabia, it's this kind of huge character arc that he goes over where he transitions kind of from this overconfident and determined person to being devastated and ready to quit all at the end of part one before we even get to an intermission. So that's not even to say what happens at the end of the film and, and where he ends up then this is why I say he's ballsy and brilliant. I'm surprised he didn't get shot at this scene at the beginning of the film where Sharif has just recently arrived at the well and quickly murdered his Bedouin guide. Mm-hmm. And he's having a conversation with him. And yes, Sharif Ali is not necessarily aggressive toward him. But all logic tells you You are in a foreign land, in a foreign place with clearly foreign customs. You've just watched a man murdered, be murdered in front of you over drinking some water when he was super thirsty from a well. And Lawrence says, my name is, he gets asked his name, right? By Sharif Ali. But he refuses to give it. He's Mm -hmm. just stubborn. One of the first scenes of him being stubborn, one of many. He says, my name is for my friend. Ali just starts to walk away, but he continues. He says, none of my friends is a murderer. Sharif Ali, so long as the Arabs fight tribe against tribe, so long will they be a little people, a silly people, greedy, barbarous, and cruel, as you are. Now, I wouldn't say that, Don.
1: Right? <laughs> no. no, no, no. I don't say that to the guy who just killed the other guy.
0: I don't either. No. And, and, and so Lawrence does, and this is a big part of his personality. And I think, for me, watching his character arc, he goes from that – to an entirely different person. And this is what makes the O'Toole performance incredible is he becomes this disheveled person, this Mm -hmm. shell of a man who, who no longer believes he has the, he loses his idealism in so many ways for everybody, for the Arabs and for the British, because he starts off British, but he has such a passion for the Arab people. He got stuck in this desk job, But then he gets the ability to go explore the desert, and that's where he gets to experience all of this growth as a person. And I love that a big part of his initial identity is also nonviolence and kind of a desire for diplomacy. He tries very hard to push those things. But then as the film progresses multiple times, his identity changes because he's forced to act against this and other multiple other personal beliefs. And it really does affect him. Um, leading up to one of the major scenes that i'm going to talk about in my my lesson and takeaway for this film but his belief in himself also leads to numerous acts of hubris that ultimately result in what was he successful in anything at all and that's kind of the interesting question i end this film with is that he goes through this major identity change Mm -hmm. but we see that it's different but what is it in the end yeah what does he become? And was any of this worth it? And I wondered what you thought about that. And did you well, feel that anything?
1: Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. It's a fantastic character arc. And place where identity really showed up for me are in the two scenes where he returns back to Cairo. Um, two very different scenes. The first scene where he comes back in the ropes, which we're going to talk about later. But in the ropes, uh, in that guise of being this, you know, victorious, not so much conqueror, but just victorious symbol of things. And the way that all those other British officers look at him and eye him and ogle him out of either fear, reverence, misunderstanding, curiosity, all the different emotions that are on the expressionless and quietless faces of those British officers and, and also in the way the attitude change of what O'Toole brings to that performance in coming back and saying, Hey, I need more. This can work. This can be done all the military angles of where that goes and how dry and kind of feeling that return scene is, is a piece of that arc. And it's awesome. The other part that I feel like you're saying kind of brings it to a close or has some antithesis to it is when he puts that uniform back on um, in, in like that defeated, disheveled self, you know, and how it how fit. it doesn't fit, oh, yeah, you know, um, or he's skinny, you know, or just all the loss of whatever he's had, not just physically, but obviously inside as well. And how just all the mannerisms are different when he's back on that time, all the different, um, goals are different. The attitude is different. And that whole, when you put all of that together from the dreamer at the desk job, the, the, the cocky guy in the field, the victorious Titan of sorts, and then back to the shell of himself, man, I'm with you. There are few greater character arcs than that in, in one given film. And to, and to have that be done and delivered by a virtual rookie and newcomer is amazing. Absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah. I think that's a big part of it, you know, and, it's just it's just crazy. I mean, there's so many ways in which he he changes, going from the end of part one where he's absolutely confident he's going to ride across the Sinai Desert like an idiot, mm-hmm. uh, be, and he promises he's so sure he promises them all of this money and all of this uh, this equipment, and then at the end of the film when something similar is happening, he just says, "There is it's not you're not going to do it, are you?" Like he he calls him out. He knows he and he's he's defeated because. Mm-hmm he thought he believed in something and he can't stand for that anymore. And they don't stand for him. And it's like, who is he if he's not Arab and he's not British? Like what, what is Lawrence at this point?
1: Right. Uh, and that um furthermore in that torture and beating scene where he thinks he can pretend to be an Arab and he so clearly is not. And he, even his captors get to that point where let's make a, let's make an example. Even if no one watches, make an example to even his own soul, of what, what he really does truly mean, you know, large or small in the scale of all that. And I know that goes towards my lesson later where I talk about extraordinary versus ordinary, but, but like you said, the arc here is is tremendous. All
0: right, well, let's move into our connecting point. Um, we, mm-hmm. We'll just go ahead and say we've picked the same one, <laughs> so that was cool. Uh, it happens sometimes. Yeah. And the scene that we both connected with is... Lawrence saving Gassim and then earning those robes that you just mentioned. Oh yeah. So the scene is set by them crossing the Nafud desert, um, which is considered impassable even by the Bedouins at this time. They travel day and night on the last stage of, of their water reserves. And one of Ali's men that's been with them, Gassim succumbs to fatigue and falls off his camel unnoticed during the night. And when Lawrence discovers him missing, he immediately, without hesitation, he turns back and goes to rescue Gazim.
1: Mm-hmm. And we're talking about where they, you know, in two days, this camels and them are going to run out of water and gas and supplies where in essentially it's possibly a, a fool's mission and a suicide mission to even consider going back and wasting that amount of time when they, when they did their job and they can make it. And my goodness, in those scenes, you can feel the heat and desolation. There's an amazing, and it, it, it it swells to the discovery shot where there's this amazing, just silhouette coming through the heat blur off the desert from the far off zoom. And it's gorgeous. And the music swells up. The camel starts to walk faster and it's just, you know, the the moment starts to peak and starts to get there. And and even, and, and they're not out of the woods yet, you know, that, um that the, the rescue part to find the two men is one part, but then to come rolling back in, to the village and find you know and find Ali and the men where that that rescue return is is it's a level of when he makes back in, it, it is a victory against doubt and a little bit of marginal racism where it's like all oh, that that foolhardy you know british man can't do that no way you know so when he comes rolling in like that man
0: yeah I mean I I really connected with it because I just feel like it was a huge act of potential self sacrifice because it easily could have killed him I mean he is just stupidity honestly to the max at this point i mean he is risking his own life for a very low chance of that he could save gasim now he does and that's amazing but he doesn't do it to win favor and he doesn't nope. do it to show off or to be the white savior so to speak he mm-hmm. does it because of his character because he is a he saw a man that needed help and he believed that he could provide it and for him that was all that mattered and and it is i love that you mentioned the marginal racism towards him in the fact yeah. that he could potentially do this it's a lack of seeing race in him that is something we should be even to this day able to pull out of this film and just champion and be like man wow you know he he's right there in it he's not trying to separate he's trying to bring together and Absolutely. this was a big part of that
1: And and come on, man, he rides that camel like an
0: effing boss. Oh, dude, I'm a sucker for any time the camels are in this film. Honestly, I love it. I love camel shots. I love when they're galloping, especially the scenes in this movie where you see just the camels running (laughs) because they run so funny. And it's just this Mm -hmm. vast backdrop and horizon of the desert uh, behind them. And they they just look so cute.
1: I'm right there with you, Aaron. Um, I'm a sucker for the, the same kind of cuteness with the camels. For me, it's the regality of when they stop and they stoop down so low and kind of dispense their riders and stuff. Where it's like this genuflect of here is my champion on top of myself. You see this man coming off me victorious. And I, I like the way they dump off their people. Uh, but back to the moment. Um When... Lawrence comes rolling in and to hear the men cheer and the music swell and and the, and then here come the extras you know, the, the hundreds of men coming, just walking up, cheering, the sounds coming in, The like you said, the trot of that camel, the immovable stoicism that's going on there. For me, as the connecting point, that's when the sweep of the whole picture shows up and it stays for good. It, it just grabs you and it never goes away. Like, I was kind of like, all right, where is this going? We're walking through the desert. I'm like, oh, I'm on Peter Jackson level here. All right, we're walking what we walk into. What's going on here? But when that moment becomes that hero moment, the film clicked another gear and took another level where even though I'm watching it projected and I wasn't, I I stopped what I was doing, whatever it was. And I'm like, all right, where is this going? This is, this is awesome.
0: Yeah. You know, and it, after this ends up, he is when he says that fantastic line too, it's probably one of my absolute favorite lines of ever, not just this film, because I think it's so beautiful. And he tells Sharif Ali, he says, nothing is written mm. saying, there is no fate. It is yeah. what we make of it.
1: And I love the way uh, O'Toole delivers it too, because in that shot, which is a complicated shot because, you know, it's, it's, he's not quite in the foreground because he's still on that camel and he's wrapped up with the scarf around his face, but you see O'Toole's eyes and they are locked on Ali, that entire scene and shot. And he stares him down over that scarf, covering his lower face and O'Toole, in that with the music swelling and the people cheering, he doesn't say a word until that scarf is moved and then bang the line. And, you know, and it hits like just thunder. Um, and then there's that addendum that is kind of that shared understanding you've been talking about where in, where, like you said, it's not so much winning favorites, winning respect. And it's that until he writes it himself, that kind of goes with the nothing is written part where, you know, that's kind of where I'm getting more towards the extraordinary part of the lesson where, you know, an ordinary person can do an extraordinary thing if they have that, you know, power to do so to make right. to, 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 to make those acts to take those sacrifices.
0: Right, and this is this is the moment that wins Sharif Ali over. Oh, yeah, because he gives him the rose, which is such an incredibly powerful scene.
1: Oh, I know, new clothes for a new man, and I like how that's a scene of grace and and slowness that follows the the, the pomp and circumstance of the victory, where it's a playful moment you know, he he's dancing and prancing. He's trying on these new clothes. It's, it's a, it's an amazing little, a side of a scene. Now, obviously it leads to the discovery of the, you know, of uh, Anthony Quinn's guys and how it, you know, it moves you to the next kind of conflict and confrontation. But for a moment there, it's a dance almost. Uh And, it, and it's not a victory dance. It's not a touchdown dance. It's not the Ace Ventura knee bopping meme with the, with the two, two skirt and all that. But um, it's really um. Those, those new clothes for a new man are part of embracing the reverence and even a bit of the culture. Um, and it kind of gets called forward because, like, again, when he goes back to those British officers in Cairo, it's that, has he gone native? Has he gone savage? It goes quiet, not so quiet, cat calls from his peers where we get to witness how he earned those robes and we see why it's not a gone native thing. We, we it's not a, you know, it, it's very, I think this is where something like dances with the wolves is a parallel where the outside people looking in who don't get it won't understand it, won't take it that way, and just look look on the surface. Whereas we, as dramatic irony, get to see that scene and see those victories and see those connections and relationships. And it and it matters so much more.
0: Yeah, it does. And it also is extra important in my opinion and powerful because of how it comes into play later. Later he persuades uh Auda Abu Tayai. I don't remember. Nice his work. Name. He's the leader of the powerful uh, tribe to turn against the Turks. And what his scheme is, is that it's almost derailed when one of Ali's men kills uh, one of Alda's because of a blood feud. And the retaliation from them was going to shatter this fragile alliance that they had. And so Lawrence ends up declaring that he will execute the murderer himself He he steps in. He's like, let me avoid this trouble between the two of you. So I will essentially be the moderator here by performing this myself. And then he's stunned because he discovers crap. The culprit is Gassim, the very man whom he just risked his own life to save, not moments earlier in the desert. And he hesitates a bit,
1: Mm -hmm. but then
0: very confidently, it seems he pulls the trigger and he shoots him. And he does it anyway. And he walks off and he throws the gun in disgust. Yeah. Non-violence aspect of himself has been betrayed. And it's just wild. I mean, he is deeply disturbed by this clearly. And yet later he ends up confessing that he enjoyed it. And so this whole scene, there's just so much going on and there's so much about his identity that we talked about earlier and how it is changing how he goes from kind of this one arc with a one side character to from saving this man to then turning into a person who has a a weird feeling of joy from performing violence. It's, it's interesting.
1: I agree. It's for one, the shooting is a stunner of the scene because you're like, nah, he ain't going to do it. Some other heroic thing will come into play. A character will take over and he, he won't, he won't pull that trigger. And then when he does it, it, like you said, the identity changes the tone picks up a little bit um the, the weight and the gravity of not just the responsibility of this character or the the duty that this character feels like he has to do or earn it just changes you know and and I think that is atypical compared to most arcs where you know the, the heroism and reverence is gained really through victory and the defeats the defeats that come to our heroes in, in other epics are normally not not from the hand of the hero they're from extenuating circumstances that just kind of beset and happen to them you know just dumb luck or or bad you know just bad fates and all that but he pulled the trigger and that's a big difference in terms of where that either helps or hurts the elevation of the the, the, the ego the, the the size the stature the legend
0: Well, let's go ahead and roll into our, our takeaways or our lessons. Uh, every movie has a lesson style and I'll let you go first with that. You
1: bet. Um, for me, I like the dichotomy going on throughout the descriptions and even the self descriptions that, uh, T.E. Lawrence says of himself through O'Toole, and that is the idea of something extraordinary versus something ordinary, and I think there's a lot of layers there, and I'll try to peel them away to show the unity of kind of this teachable trait that I'm picking out here. Um, First, there is the victory of superiority from inferiority. Um, Some of that is a little bit of borderline. Imperialism, colonialism, a little bit of white savior in a way where, you know, the only way to, and this is a line from the film, the only way to be anything and do anything is to kind of be the dominant conquering European dealing with tribal leaders and non-Christians and all these little savages and heathens or at least people that, you know, are thought of as being that. So some of that is the hubris aspect of it where the, the extraordinary part is, is, is a mental thing that they, that a character such as T. Lawrence would think he has, even though we really know that he, by, he on his own would be the inferior one in this situation. I, I I think this would call back, like you said, to, you know, when he first meets Ali, like in that situation, he's the inferior one, yet makes it out with, you know, by the skin of his teeth in that kind of way. At the same time, despite making that next level of being a little bit of extraordinary because of his acts and all that, he still can't have all that he wants, which is not unlike everyone else in Burult in the conflict where they all want this whatever they think it is, a blood feud, a birthright, um, lay claim to their holy land, whatever the, the geographical and geopolitical goals are, no one gets what they want. And even when there is victory, there's still going to be conflict and how, um, no matter how you're embroiled, you can want extraordinary things, but you're stuck with ordinary results. Is is kind of a layer in there. And some of that, tiptoes us closer and closer to that kind of destiny angle that is that is bigger and at play with the te lawrence situation here because te um is enabled uh but he is still just an ordinary infallible man with tremendous flaws who gained his position through extraordinary success and as you said aaron sacrifice where he got to this level in place through experiencing losses um, some by his own hand, as we heard here, that both galvanized him and humbled him to a degree to remember his place and less of his ego, even though there are times where ego and place still fuel and drive him. And a lot of that in terms of making this visible and palpable through the screen is, is coming through Peter O'Toole. Um, it's a heck of an arc, like we've been saying. I completely understand its placement as a great performance and especially from a relative newcomer once again. So, um, extraordinary versus ordinary it was me
0: nice well i'm gonna cheat i have two um and they so I'll, I'll keep them sort of brief but the first one is centered around the idea of unification taking work and sacrifice and one of my favorite things about lawrence is revealed very early on when he is traveling with his bedouin guide on camelback and this is leading up to that scene that we talked about earlier where he makes a a brash uh come back to sharif ali but while he's Initially writing with with this guy, his first shots of him in the desert, he says, I'll drink when you do, when the man starts to uh, bring out water or man asks if he needs water. And he ends up putting his water away, denying himself of quenching his own thirst. And to me, this is a man who immerses himself in the culture that he is experiencing. And we see this time and time again, he is not there to merely observe or to lord over the Arabs in any way. He's not there to use them. He doesn't have an ulterior motive of controlling them like some of his British officers above him do. He is there to serve and to be a part of them. And by doing what the Arab does, he can be fully united with his guide on this journey. And to me, the lesson here is very simple. It's walk a mile in someone else's shoes. And by doing so, you'll have a better perspective of what it's like to be them and also earn a lot of respect for it throughout your time. And I see this through Lawrence, his actions, you know, multiple times in the film. And I just feel like this is why they take to him. This is why they embrace him so much. This is why he is successful when he is successful to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, my second lesson is this control your emotions. Even Lawrence makes bad decisions. And when his army sees a column of retreating Turkish soldiers who've just massacred the residents of Tafas, this is in the second half of the film. One of the men that's with him demands no prisoners. He's standing out front, he raises his sword. Lawrence hesitates, but the man ends up charging off against the Turks alone. Amazing it's, scene. It does. And he's quickly killed. But Lawrence is rattled by this, takes up the dead man's battle cry, clearly feeling very swept away by this desire for revenge. And the result is an absolute and utter slaughter of which Lawrence participates but completely regrets after Mm -hmm. the fact and is chastised for it. By people that previously respected And this, to me, is pretty much the culmination of his transformation in the film from pacifist to essentially just another violent Arab. Or yeah. just another violent Britain or just another violent Turk. Or, uh, yeah, Turk. He ends up going with the Arabs and setting up this council to administer the city of, I think it's is it Damascus?
1: It is Damascus.
0: But the tribesmen are not up to this task. And this is why I wanted to bring this up now, because it is the beautiful, beautiful comparison to that first moment with Sharif Ali, where he tells him Mm. that you've got to work together. If Arab is killing Arab, it's never going to happen. What do we see here? Despite his efforts, they do nothing but bicker. And unable to maintain the public utilities, they soon disband, they abandon the city, it falls into ruin and fire, the British get to take it over. And I love it. I love it. I love it. I love yeah. it. Because so much of this is about controlling your emotions, about Lawrence in that moment of rage taking on the Turks and betraying his character. And it's about controlling your emotions for the Arabs, who, despite supposedly getting what they want in the taking of this city, are undone by their inability to unify together. Yep when it actually matters most, right? They're able to do it when they're fighting, but they're not able to do it when they have a common enemy, but not when there is no enemy essentially. And gosh, it's just, it's brilliant. It's, it's such a great lesson. It's seeing it happen reminds us of the consequences of these things and why we have to be careful of, of making these same mistakes. So those were my lessons.
1: I'm with you. Um, The parallels that you're talking about where, this, this geopolitical situation has replayed itself in history, not just in T.E. Lawrence, not just in 1962. We're still there where this stuff happened, where, like you said, uh, strength is undone by a lack of coordination and communication and, it, and, and character and, and, and emotions where we can be as, as true and, and I don't know proper as we think we are, but we're still humans. And it, it all boils down to how you hold your temper or hold your emotions. I think we have a leader in office that's not really great at that on Twitter. And for example, like co- Cooler Heads Prevail is a place where that's something that goes to. And I really like the way you broke that down. That's really fantastic. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Um,
0: with that, we're going to wrap up on a, on a positive note because I got some praise. So Don, where can people find you on social media if they want to engage with you further or find some of your writing?
1: Uh, look up the search term. Every movie has a lesson. That's every has a You'll use that term to find me on Twitter and on Facebook. And, uh, I'm happy to report. I'm a brand new inductee into the online film critic societies. Um, they are a rock tomatoes approved group. Maybe there's a chance I can make it on there someday. So I'm crossing my fingers for that, but, uh, every movie has a lesson.
0: All right. And what do we have coming up next month?
1: Next month? Um, badges. We don't need no stinking badges. It's, uh, we're back to Humphrey Bogart, and we're at the tre- the treasure of the Sierra Madre, which I believe is celebrating a 80th anniversary. I think 1938 is where we're going here with this. Um, that should be a fantastic film, and uh, I'll 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 watch Bogart anytime. You're kidding me? Bring yeah, it. I love it.
0: I love it. I'll I'll be glad to revisit that one. And uh, listeners, if you would like to talk to me further, you can do so on Twitter at Feelin Film or in our amazing Facebook group. You can plug it into the search bar on Facebook. You can type it in feelinfilm Film now facebook.com slash groups slash film uh you can also find a link to it in the show notes and in on the website we would love to have you come be a part of that and talk movies with us every day all day long we had a great time don this was good i'm glad that you got to uh, revisit it and uh, i'll be looking forward to next week
1: thank you for listening as always stay positive
0: and keep feeling
1: film